turn to uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, and those of you that don't bring a Bible, we have pew Bibles there. Uh, we appreciate you not taking them, but you can use them. It's a terrible thing to steal in church. Uh, let's begin. Uh, verse 1, 15. 1 Corinthians. Once Corinthians, now Californians. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. I want to speak on the subject of what is the gospel. Uh, don't be quick to answer that. If I ask a lot of people what is the gospel, they would do well to say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's what the four gospels, right? The word gospel is a word that means good news. It was used of runners that would run from a battle, and they would be the kind that would run back and announce victory to the inhabitants, to the king. We, we won the battle. And so you've got a passage, a brother mentioned today, beautiful are the feet of those who bear good news. Hey, uh, those who bear good news are the euangelon, those who bring a good message. Gospel is good message is what it literally means. So when Paul is writing here to these believers, he's really going to defend the resurrection of the dead in the whole chapter but he's showing, first of all, our faith is in a Christ that was resurrected from the dead. But I want to look at the gospel and show you that there's basically two approaches to God and going to heaven, no matter what religion you are, whether you're in the church or not. And the first one is, I'm trusting in myself to win the favor of God and I put, or the gods, for even pagan religions, the philosophy is the same. I can do something to win the favor of God. If I have to sacrifice my firstborn son, as they did in the worship of Moloch, 
uh, if I have to sacrifice a daughter on an altar, whatever it takes, food, offerings, good works, uh, going to mass every day, going to church every whatever, uh, I'm in this performance religion that if I do enough, if I act nice enough, I can some way win the approval of God. And you, you have reverse sides of this. You have people who say, I'm never good enough. And they're always filled with shame and guilt, and, and their heads are kind of bowed down. Uh, they're always guilty. They're, they're always, uh, there's a dis-ease in them all the time. Uh, they're, not, uh, they're like a schizophrenic about their relationship with God because they're really, they're really basing it on their performance. I, I haven't performed good enough. I'm not good enough. No, you're not. Well, I'll try harder. You still won't be good enough. Then the other approach to God is the gospel approach, that I base my relationship on God on what another has done for me. What God has done for me in the person of his son, and if I approach God on that basis, has Christ done enough to give me a favorable standing with God, or has he not done enough? Is it good advertisement to always be guilty as a Christian? Is it good advertisement to always be down at the mouth, and not just about circumstance and economy and health and bad reports, but in your relationship to God? And so uh, we want to know, do we advertise God by the fact that I am resting on my worst day, I'm counting on the righteousness of another to be my firm foundation and conviction that I'm acceptable to God because of what Christ has done for me, and I put my trust in it. Now, let's take the gospel apart. First of all, I want to look at three things. The facts of the gospel, one. Two, faith in the gospel, what does that mean? And then thirdly, what are the effects of the gospel? What are the effects? Let's look at, first of all, the facts of the gospel. And there's two, two ways to look at the gospel. Historical facts, historical facts, and theological implications. Uh, it, it, we, in this church, you know, so many of us put our kids through Christian schools, private school. Uh, moms work second jobs that we can put them in private Christian schools. We didn't want them to get beat up in public school. We didn't want them to be corrupted. So many of us in this church, especially in the early days, paid the price to put our kids through Christian education, private schools. And everybody in this church, our kids grew up, they could say like this, what is the gospel? And the road answer was, Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried, rose again. Is that correct? Just knowing those facts, would that save you? Would you know what happened? You might get a hint, he died for our sins. That'd be the closest. And I've come to see, because a lot of times, I'm saved. I know Jesus died, buried, rose again. Did any of you ever believe that before you became a Christian? I did. I don't know when I didn't believe it. 
I believed it while I was stealing hubcaps. I believed it while I was telling you to go where you shouldn't go. I, I always believed the facts. I, I was raised around Christians, raised in a Christian home. But I didn't have faith in Christ, but I knew the facts of the gospel. No doubt. Always. That's the benefit of growing up around it. And so just because someone could spit back historical facts and the argument here we must remember, you may not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And he's going to debate that as he goes through the chapter. That makes no difference. This is not a philosophical argument. It's a historical fact that has been vindicated in history. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, you don't believe Abraham Lincoln lived. You can't see everything that's happened and everything that's true. I, I'm amazed at evolutionists. Yeah, this came about 100 million years ago, and I'm looking for the Kodak camera. I, I want the empirical, scientific, observable facts that you say anything happened 10 million years ago. You're guessing, making up, and you're just proving you took calculus because you weren't there. And so we're going back just 2,000 years ago, and we have it authenticated in secular history all the way down. We know that a man by the name of Jesus lived in the area of Galilee, died under Pontius Pilate, rose again. It's a fact. But now, theological implications. This is when the Spirit takes those facts, and what are the implications? Let's try to unload them a little bit. Who died, first of all? Who died? The one who died was the perfect Son of God. God, God actually died. Nietzsche used to say, he started the theology, God is dead. Now, there's one side. Now, Nietzsche was a pagan unbeliever out of Germany, preceded Hitler, He had a great philosophical influence on Germany. But he's right. In one sense, there was a day God did die, the second member of the Godhead. The person died. He was still alive as God, but the God-man died. That's true. But why did he die? Why did he die? And he says it this way, this simple. He died for our Sins. You actually heard sin in church. Not our mistakes, our sins. Uh, today, there's an absence of the very word sin. We don't even use it in church because it's not user-friendly. Well, hell isn't user-friendly either, but there is such a thing. Judgment isn't friendly, but it's coming. Let me tell you what sins he's talking about. Some people, I tell them they're a sinner, and they say, hey, I didn't grow up in Richmond. Wait, we're not talking about that. I'm not bad. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Let me tell you what the word basically means. Uh, sin, its primary meaning in the New Testament was to miss the mark. Harmartia is the word. Uh, it was to fall short of expectations. Now, God is saying, all have sinned, and they are falling short of the glory of God. Now, now, that way you might get it better than me saying, are you calling me a murderer? No. Are you calling me a thief? No. Are you saying I'm a womanizer? No. 
you know, all the, the nasty nine, the terrible nine you can come up with. No, he just says he died for our failure to measure up to God's expectations. Uh, I thought of it this way. Uh, I was a hard professor in college. I was hard. Usually young profs are. I was only in my 20s, but I was teaching at this college, and I flunked more students than any other prof in that school. Terrible. Good kids that just failed the test. And you get here, they got a 60 on it. Now, I really like this kid, but I got to make out final grades. What do I grade them on? I like them, or they pass the test. It's really hard. You just say, you know, a Christian college, kid, I really love you. You just got an F. You know, you try to make up work. You try to get them through whatever. But I think that's a miserable place for a teacher to be when they kind of like the person, but they're not passing the test. And to be a sinner, as nice as you are, you're the nice variety, let's say. But the best of men, the best of women, falls short of perfection, falls short of all that God expects. And it says, Christ died for everything you failed to measure up to. You should have told the truth, you told a lie. You should have been moral, you were immoral. You should have been perfect, you were imperfect. It's just the human condition. It's not you're any worse than anyone else. We just, he died for our sins, our failure to measure up. The whole race has been doing that since Adam and Eve rebelled. Why did he die? For, and that word for is huper, he died for the benefit of people who sin. He died in place of me, that substitution for, he died in my place for all my failure to measure up to his standard, to ever see him, to ever go to heaven, to ever be accepted. Christ died in my place for my sins. And God saw to it that he was buried And to vindicate that he had paid for the sins, he raised him from the dead. Romans 1 says it. Romans 4.25 says it. Over and over, the resurrection of Christ was God's stamp of approval. He truly did pay for your sins. Now, let me ask you this. If Christ paid for your sins, do you have to? Go ahead. You're thinking it through. I mean, that... If if that was the answer, the church is so anemic, you need air. Did Christ? No, no, no. Here here you say, but you you don't know. I I see people who've been divorced or people who, the the women have had an abortion or the men. Wait, let me ask you. Did he die for your sins? Healthier. He said he did. What are you dragging them around for? What are you always reminding God? I did this. I did that. Did you know Psalms 103 says, uh, let's never forget 
God's benefits, who put our sins as far as the east is from the west, and that when you become before God, he doesn't see what you did wrong that he paid for, that you trusted Christ for. It's no longer held against you. See, we don't believe the gospel in the church hardly. We got more guilt complexes in the church because you're not resting in the gospel. Now, um, I'll keep going here because I'll make a point later. I use PowerPoint, and many times I lack power and a point. Uh, that I think sometimes uh, on um, uh, the gospel, now you follow me. If I said to you, well, I'm going to speak on the gospel tonight. You said, oh, shoot, I've heard this so many times. Well, come on, I'm a Christian. I don't need the gospel. I believed that years ago. Wait, wait, wait. You're just the Pharisee I want to talk to. Here. Every day in prayer, look, let me give credit to Jerry Bridges. I have a quote. Is it in your notes there? I hand down on these. Sometimes we print more than we need to print because I'll give you my good stuff. I should hold that from you. B.B. Uh, B. Warfield, not B.B. King, Warfield, <laughs> said, we must always be accepted for Christ's sake, or we cannot ever be accepted at all. This is not only true of us when we believe. It is just as true after we have believed. It will continue to be true as long as we live. Our need of Christ does not cease with our believing, nor does the nature of our relationship to him or to God through him ever alter no matter what are our attainments in Christian graces or our achievement in Christian behavior may be. Application, every day when you pray, you ought to pray the gospel into yourself. If Jesus said every day you should pray, Father, forgive me for my debts, not, not financial, moral obligations, and let me forgive people who sin. On what basis does God ever forgive us anything? On the basis that is Christ, his son, bore it on the cross. So what you do, uh, I don't know about you, there's some days I don't want to show up in prayer because I blew it. Maybe I got in a spat, yelled at the kids, did something. You know, you just, uh, you cross ways or you know you blew it and uh, you don't feel worthy to come. You're not clean enough. You haven't performed well enough. Well, guess where you start? Lord, I'm coming to you, not in my own righteousness. I've blown it. I cannot come before you based on performance. I'm not coming before you because I'm a pastor and I'm a goody good. No, I'm a hell-deserving sinner. I have no righteousness but what you gave me through Christ, and I want to cash in on it. You said in Hebrews, we approach God, uh, Hebrews 10, we approach God only on bloody ground. There's a new and living way open up into the heavens through the blood of Christ, for he opened it through the veil, that is, his body, or Ephesians 2 that says, we have access to God, both Jew and Gentile, by the blood, the blood of Christ. Now, the blood represents his death under the sentence of God for your sins, now, God, I come to you not based on performance. I don't come before you to make points. 
I come to you for I have had this privilege bought all the days I'm on this earth. I'm still a sinner. I still am weak. I'm, I still blow it. I'm coming not on the basis of performance, but on the basis of what Christ did on the cross. And every sinner here said amen. amen. You never quit needing the gospel. You, you come and you say, uh, have mercy on me. I'm a great sinner. I used to tell my daughters, your dad's not a great Christian. I've just been conquered. I'm a captive to Christ. I'm not great. I've just been captured. There's nothing greater. Now, you every day, you, if you want to get your prayer life back, you ought to start off every day. It could keep you there at least seven minutes. If you just start claiming the gospel, I'm showing up, God, because I'm claiming the work of Christ for my sins on the cross. I have access as guilty as I've been and as wrong as I've been for my temper, for whatever the issue was. I'm showing up, and I'm coming to you not presumptuously. I am approaching you on the basis of the blood-sprinkled path that leads into heaven, the blood of your Son. That's why I get to show up. That's the gospel appropriated in my prayer life. Instead of how have I performed. For some of you are nervous wrecks. You're keeping so many lists on performance. And, and God's not really impressed. You know, termites are also busy and destructive. Uh, some of you are just nervous, and we call it Christian service. He said in John 15, unless you abide, you don't bear any fruit. You gotta you gotta wait on him. The strength is Christ, not just activity. Just what are you doing? I, I don't know, but I'm busy for Jesus. Yeah. You 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 create, creating a tornado with all the activity around you. Uh, who gets the benefits of Christ's death? Is everybody going to heaven? Is everybody going to heaven? Anybody here going? Okay, there's a few more. We'll take it by faith. Uh he died for our sins. And, and notice what he says. Uh, some say everybody's going to be saved. Uh, some say uh, men who earn their salvation get it. Scripture seems to say those that he has chosen will finally be the ones who believe in him, and the benefits only accrue to those who exercise faith in him. So he died for our sins, for sure, the people of God that have taken him. But now, let's look at faith. He says something here. Uh, this gospel, it, it enables you to stand in this time, stand with acceptance before God, by which you are being, notice that, present tense. You are being, and the present tense, saved, and let's, I'm clarifying language. You know, we used to have on missions and uh, on the sides of churches, we grew up, Jesus saves. And someone said, I'm not drowning. Yeah, you really are. Save is a word that means, uh, it, it, it came from the Hebrew for shalom, to be well, to be whole. And they came over into our language to be saved, soteria, and it has the idea, it was used of health, it was used of being healed, 
uh, it was used to being well, prosperous, and so, but it came to be used of being saved or delivered from God's wrath towards our sins, being delivered from what our sins deserve, hell, penalty, uh, the anger of God. What brings you in the favor of God is you believe the gospel, that God has done something for you to protect you. You see, if Jonathan Edwards was to preach today, sinners in the hands of an angry God, we don't know if churchmen would show up because we don't like to hear these kinds of truths. You mean there's, there's damnation? There's hell? There's just, God's never angry. Well, yes, he is. Romans says he's been angry ever since Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden. He's not just love. He's not just righteous. He's that. But he's also angry with what's going on. God's wrath is being poured out. Romans 1.18. How long? Ever since Genesis 3, God's been giving men up, giving them up to do every sort of evil you can do. How do I escape the anger of God? How do I escape the righteous wrath of God against my sins, against my failures, against all that I've done against the living God? He says, the gospel, when you put trust in the good news that Christ has taken your place and that he's a risen Savior, you will be saved, past tense, and you'll be in the process of being saved. Salvation is three tenses. I have been saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved. Past tense, saved from the penalty of my sin. Present, being saved from the power of indwelling sin. In the future, you'll be saved from the presence of sin when God gives you a glorified, resurrected body. I'm being saved. I am saved. I will be saved. Now, notice this. You are saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Wow. What, what does that mean? I believed in vain. Well, let me give you just the meaning of the word. Uh, the word in vain here means without cause, to no purpose. Uh, it, it was used, Kittle's uh, uh, lexicon says, it was used of decisions made at random for no objective reason. I just, it seemed like the thing to do to believe. It's casual. It's not permanent faith. It's casual. It's kind of the parable of the four soils. One just springs up quickly, has great joy, and then the sun comes out, it withers. Other springs up and worries come in and choke it out. Only one out of the four soils continued to bear fruit. You must be aware of this. Do you have saving faith or casual faith? Do you just uh, go to church because you grew up in church? Or have you really believed in Christ for yourself? Uh, you know, in a long-term pastorate, Everybody used to go to Valley. I meet people around all the time. I used to go there. I thought, thought well, that's our problem. Everybody's a used to. We need new folks. <laughs> Fill in the ranks here. I used to go to Valley. And then it's all right if they're going to another church. What's scary is I used to go to church. You used to. 
why, why is that? Well, uh, whatever, whatever the excuses are. And here Paul, right from the beginning, says, these truths and these facts are true. Christ died for our sins, was buried, rose again. Faith in him saves. Unless you've had that kind of faith that is vain. And it's warned James, uh, as Dave Hurtado spoke on saving faith and faith that has no works. This is faith that is just believed at random, washes out. It's scary. The longer you go, you just, I'm going to watch people say, oh, he just became a Christian. I want to rejoice, and I'll rejoice at their baptism. But back here, I'm saying, let's see if they last. Is that right? Well, I don't know if it is or not, because I went forward to receive Christ about three to four times before I was ever saved, and I was sincere every time. Kid, I'd be moved into service. They'd make an invitation. I'd come. We had altars. I knelt at the altar. I prayed. I prayed to receive Christ. Like I said, I always believed Christ was the Son of God. I always believed he died for our sins. I always believed he was a living Savior, but I didn't know him. I just knew all the facts, like a good Catholic that was raised in catechism, taught marvelous facts about Christ. A good Protestant just grew up with sound facts, not bashing anybody, but it never took it never took. I always washed out within two weeks. I, would, I nearly drowned one time in Southern California, and I knew, what does a, a drowning teenage boy do? Boy, all of his religious experience comes up in a moment. God, if you'll save me, I'll live for you. Just like that. Boom. I knew exactly which button to push, and boom, God saved me in Long Beach. My brother David never heard my cry for help. I'm still wondering if he just ignored it. But I was with him and my cousins, and boy, an undertow got me. And I, I knew I was dying. I truly was. God, if, you, if you'll spare my life, I'll serve you. I lasted about a week. Then I went back to old language, old ways, and forgot what I promised. None of you have ever done that. Well, I did. And so I had many in, encounters. It didn't take till I was 14, and then I still washed out. When Walter T. Helms started, and I wanted, I love rock and roll, and I love dances, and all that, and I loved a lot of things I shouldn't be into at that time. I went back. I dropped church. About the ninth grade, God got a hold of me, and I've never looked back. But I, it scares me how that people can come up, and they can be crying, I need God. I, yes, you do. Wonderful. Is it in vain faith? Or is it saving faith? Saving faith continues. You never walk away because you know I need Christ for the rest of my life, not just to get me through a hard time in my life, not just to get me through uh, child-rearing years or uh, my, my husband just left me and, and you're going through a heartbreak in life, which would make anyone weep. But are you embracing Christ? Have you come to see Christ and abandon hope in any other, giving you an acceptable standing with God, but Christ and Christ alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, for time and eternity, saving faith 
embraces him for life. For life. And some of you may have been around church all your life, and you, you, you've uh, had just enough religion to be inoculated. You know, uh, you can get inoculated so you never get the real thing. That's what's scary about growing up in church. You can learn the songs, learn the routine, and right now be praying, pray to God. He just goes 10 more minutes. That would be a great service, you know. Uh, you know all the church life stuff. I may go longer today. My watch stopped at 3 this morning, so I thought, good. It's welcoming me back. I could preach without a watch. Go forever. Uh, but the danger is, do you have a faith that uh, continues, even on your worst day? You can't go back. I'm just thinking now, uh, this last week, my brother and I, we got with some guys and playing music that many of them made it in different circles. Not big. They, they played with Atkins. They went to Nashville. They did this. They did recordings. They did this and that. And they were heroes to me as a kid. I could never just sit in a jam session with these guys because they're off the chart. But you know what? I, I looked at some of those heroes, and I thought, what do you have to show for 69 years of just playing the guitar if you don't have Christ? You know, the talents got to wane somewhere. One had a bad accident. Brilliant. I just wish I could steal everything they knew how to play. But I thought of my own brother. He always could play redneck oaky bars and play bass or he can get right with God and go to church and raise his kids a different way. He chose Christ. Did he make the wrong choice? Yeah, I just went away. I, okay, if we stay in this path, what's the best? Hey, I play with Atkins. Good. Uh, I'm making albums. Good. Any selling? Uh, or over here saying, I just decided to walk with Christ, still bang around on a guitar, but never this good. This is off the charts. Moses, do you want Egypt, or do you want to be identified with me and walk by faith out in the wilderness? But don't forget, someday I'll get you on the Mount of Transfiguration, and someday you'll spend eternity. If you can just say no to the wrong things that could destroy you and consume you and say yes to God and give all your talent, give all that you are to him. Let me give you three marks of saving faith and the transformation. See, there's three things about the resurrection of Christ. First of all, we, it's, we have an empty tomb. They've never found the body. So that's a historical fact. Whether you like it or not, it's a fact. If you can find the body, please write your thesis on it, and nobody will believe you. Uh, two, uh, we have many witnesses. He names 500, James, Peter, then Paul, and the third thing is that this Christ changed lives. And Paul says three things about himself that are totally a contrast to the self-righteous Pharisee in Philippians 3, where I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of Pharisees. I persecuted the church of God, circumcised the eighth day, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, among my own Jewish people, a leading figure in the first century, a powerful man, 
powerful mind. But three things he says that meeting this resurrected Christ did for him. Number one, and it usually takes Christ, he said, I feel humble about myself. Verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, that is the word that was used of an aborted fetus. That's the word. I, I, I was born like out of due season, a premature fetus that never made it to maturation, never made it to a full nine-month pregnancy. I just was flushed down the toilet. That's, that's where I put myself on the scale. I never did deserve to be in the apostolic band. I wasn't with Christ in his earthly life. I wasn't with him in the upper room. I wasn't there. I was studying how to oppose this new sect. But there's something that, that comes over this man. He says, he appeared to me. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. There's something about coming to know Christ and to see his magnificent. You forever quit being impressed with your own accomplishments. People who come to see Christ in his glory cease to be impressed with themselves. I love the uh, uh, D.A. Carson at Trinity Theological Seminary outside of Chicago. He was doing an interview of uh, Carl F. H. Henry, who started Christianity Today, one of the great theological minds of uh, the 20th century. And he also was in, uh, uh, interviewing Kenneth Cancer, who was the president of Trinity that had just retired, retired to take care of an ailing wife. And so while he's doing the uh, interview, all of a sudden he just said to, to Carl, he said, Carl, you know what? You've been voted the number one theologian of the 20th century. Uh, you wrote this whole classic uh, series of theology books. Uh, you started this. You were friends with Billy Graham and, and all the accolades and all the pedigree accomplishments. And says, and in all of it, it seems you've kept your head about you. You've never become a haughty, arrogant man. Could you give us, uh, what, what's your formula for keeping your head? He said, it's hard to live in the shadow of the cross and be impressed with yourself. I just talked to a pastor going through great troubles uh, in their church. And one of the troubles came when they took a uh, young man, put him, in the, put him in a position of authority, and say, only been saved a few years, but against all sound judgment, he put him in a leadership position. And he did just what First Timothy said. If you put a novice in an office, he'll fall into the condemnation of Satan, for pride will bring him down. And this man has proven to be a great obstacle and a great, uh, oh, a blight on the influence of that church. You see, humility always marks that a person's been hanging out with God. When you're arrogant, you've been reading your own resume too much. You need to get rid of some of your mirrors. See, for some of you, you think heaven's going to be a room full of mirrors. 
and all you get to see is you. That'd be hell. More of you? You want more of you for eternity? No, the glory of God is more of him, more of Christ. And once you've kept, that's why I know some of you aren't saved. You've never been captured by the glory of Christ. You still are much impressed with yourself. Humility ought to mark the people. of. I'm not talking about groveling. I'm not saying denying your education or your competence. It's not feigning humility. It's that you don't think much about yourself because you're so busy thinking about him. Paul said, I know this much. I'm the least of the bunch. I picked my category among them. He was the most educated among Put him next to a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. Peter up there, I know how to catch fish. And Paul could probably say, I'm probably fluent in five to seven languages. I have the credentials of being with Gamaliel. Hey, there's not one of you 11 other guys that can match me in degrees, in mental power. I'm the greatest brain among the apostolic band, but I'm the least. I'm the least. Two, transformation. He said, though I persecuted the church of God, that's pretty bad. I consented to the killing of Stephen. I, I held the garments while men stoned him to death, and I was nodding my head. This is a guy killing, killing. And in Acts 9, I'm going to kill Christians up in Damascus. So I am vehemently opposed to Christianity, and I will wipe them out but now he said, I who once persecuted the church of God have become an apostle, one of the foundation stones of the church. In other words, I love what I hate it. I now propagate what I sought to persecute. There's been a life change in me, not just an added religion, not just a little bit more knowledge, but I've had a life transformation I'm not the same since I met Christ. And to ever think you could meet Christ in the forgiveness of your sins and remain the same is just preposterous. There's never been anyone who came to know him that he didn't transform their life. And then he said, he gave me a new motivation for living I was a go-getter all the time, but he says something in verse 10 that's powerful. He said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Now watch. He's not working hard to earn his salvation. He's already received it. He's already received this grace. But he said, the outworking of the grace that saved me, the grace in Christ, it took over me so that I worked harder than anyone. And he said, whether it was I or the grace of God, it doesn't matter. But I know I was motivated. I did not become passive. I became engaged in service until my head fell off in a basket and was handed to Nero from a Mamertine prison cell in Rome. If you go to Rome, you want to go to the Mamertine cell that he was kept in. And to think that the greatest preacher of 
the Christian era at the age of 54 was beheaded and his head, isn't it not amazing? The greatest prophet that ever lived was beheaded and I think the greatest preacher of this era was beheaded. It makes me know I'm in a dangerous vocation. The greatest have already been beheaded and the founder has been crucified. It's not cheap. What motivates you? Are you motivated by the grace of God? It will never motivate you to be passive. It will never motivate you to be laissez-faire. It will never, well, uh, I, I'll get around to God. I'll get around, you know, I'm, I'm an awful busy person, aren't we all? And just have to die to get a vacation. But here's a man that says, I am willing to spend and be spent because the gospel that I preach brings humility, brings transformation, and it burns motivation in you to want to serve, serve. That's another thing. I, when people tell me, oh, I, I know Christ, you don't want to hear this, especially if they've been, a, I always ask them, what are you doing for God? Well, that's none of your business, Pastor. My, my faith is private. I know. It's like that Scottish pastor. They say during the week he was invisible, and on Sunday he was incomprehensible. I, I, I do my works for the Lord. He said, you're supposed to do them so that men can see them, so they'll glorify your Father which is in heaven. Let me ask you this. Is it in vain? Is it in vain to put an extra week of vacation Bible school to reach a bunch of little kids that some of you call brats? Is it worth it? It's weak, but that's okay. Some of the parents are here. Or our youth ministry. Anything we're trying to do, who said we do the best job? No. What are you doing? Wherever you are. Has the gospel transformed you? Has it, is it the greatest thing going on on the earth? Or is it just something if you get spare time? See, once Christ is center of your heart, and when you know he's the only one that paid for your place in heaven for eternity, claim the gospel for your humility. Claim the gospel, you transform. I'm not everything I want to be, but I thank God I'm not what I used to be. Amen? I'm in process. I'm becoming something different. One time I had to be defended against an, an accusation that wasn't true of me. And so when I'm defending myself uh, before the deacons, uh, I, I was getting all self-righteous before I went into the meeting to make my defense. And God just uh, came over me. You know what he did? He just kind of says, well, don't act like you couldn't have done it. You used to do it. And so that kept me from hitting the guy that accused me because I wanted to smack him. Where did you come up with that? But by the time I got before the man, I said, well, I didn't do it. Matter of fact, if I was going to do it, I would have gone for more money. If you're going to be accused, you might as well do it big. Not for 30 bucks. Go out in flames. But I remember where I didn't mind stealing anything I wanted. Any of you thieves out there? Every thief said Amen. Don't tell me you didn't grow up in our schools if you're not a semi-thief around here. 
We stole a lot of things at school, ball gloves that never were returned. That's called stealing. I was returning ball gloves when I started Bible college to the grammar school I went to. I walk in there, and I got on my ministerial tie, and you know, in those days we wore suits, you know, and I'm in college, about my sophomore year. And I realized one day when I was praying, I had a ball glove that I stole from Bayview Grammar School. And the Lord said, you stole that. When are you going to return it? I said, Lord, I'm a ministerial student. Ministerial students don't return things they stole. He said, you are. I went up to Loray's and returned things I stole. We were going to have a big fight one night, so I had to have a dog chain. I don't know. I, I think I ran faster than I used it. But tough, you know, 90 pounds in a leather jacket, that makes you a threat. Guess what? I returned it, told that school principal, Jesus spoke to my heart today that I owe this school this glove because he's changed my life. I'm not a thief anymore. I don't fuss with my mother anymore. I'm changed. And I have men that come to this church. They knew me because I used to fight with them in school. We used to compete in sports. Not bragging about me. I am what I am by the grace of God. But his grace was not in vain. And I'm going to serve him until I die or till I see him face to face. I hope you get engaged. <laughs>